This is Tea Talks podcast that aims to amplify the voices of thinkers and leaders who are fighting on the front lines of radical change. Powered by Greenpeace Aotearoa, made with the help of our supporters. In this episode of Tea Talks, we sit down with Brianna Fruin to explore her relationship with nature and what sparked her love to fight for climate change. Brianna is an essential voice for the environmental sector across the Pacific. At the age of 11, Brianna became the founding member of 350 Samoa and leader of environmental group Future Rush. Since then, Brianna has activated various spaces such as the United Nations and the Malala Fund to help combat climate change. Hi Brianna, it's really lovely to meet you again um, and I'm really excited about uh, having a quick conversation with you today. Um, would you like to introduce yourself? So, Talafalava, my name is Brianna Fruin. I'm from the island of Samoa, but I recently moved to Auckland three years ago. So I've been here for a little bit, but I was actually born in New Zealand. Um, so I moved to Samoa as a child and then I've kind of moved back. So yeah. Uh, the one thing we wanted to talk to you about today was really about your relationship with nature. Um, so what, how would you describe how you um, relate to nature and what experiences you've had that have shaped how you feel about um, your relationship with nature now? Uh, yes, um, as someone who grew up in the islands, um, grew up around nature, that was very influenced by culture and so um, growing up in in Samoa and being surrounded by Samoan culture our culture is is enriched by nature and so there is no culture without land and there's no culture without sea and so for me nature is very much who I am and I feel like that is what makes me me the water the food that I eat the culture that has paved the way for me and that has um, taught me how to navigate through this world uh, all goes back to nature uh, so I feel like nature in a way has paved my path and has also made my path because of, of the destruction we're seeing that is the reason why I got into climate change work um, and so that's the reason why I joined a group called Pacific Climate Warriors and I'm doing work in the climate space is because of nature and the way that it has been so unjustly um, degraded. Um, do you think that there are certain people or experiences that you had in your life that shaped this relationship you have with nature and your sense of obligation um, particularly to do work on climate change? Yes, I think throughout my whole childhood, uh, my parents always made sure to, to let me know of how lucky I was. And so, you know, a lot of people would think that if you grew up in the islands, you were unlucky and that you were looking for a life outside of, of wherever you grew up in. But for me, my parents always told me that I was the lucky one to be able to return because I started in New Zealand and I went back home to Samoa, where for a lot of people's experiences, especially my, around my age, is you start in the islands and you go to Australia, you go to New Zealand, you go to America. And so for, for my childhood, I always felt like there was a reason why my parents were called home. And I feel like a big reason 
for that was for me to be back in my island, which is is nature. It's the, the nature of, of, of our environment in Samoa and that island life. And that experience of being 10 minutes away from the most gorgeous beach, of, of being surrounded by forest, of growing up in a village, uh, really enriched me as a person. And honestly, I just wish more people could have that experience where there's a misconception where people think we need to take kids out of the island, where I feel like we need to put kids back into the island. Um, do you remember the first time you learned about climate change and how that made you feel at the time? So funny. Um, I actually remember the first time I learned about climate change so vividly. So my mom worked at an environmental organization called SPREP. Um, so it's the Secretary of the Pacific Regional Environment Program in Samoa. Uh, and I went to one of the conferences that they were hosting with her because I never had a babysitter and my, both my parents worked two hard jobs and so I would go with my mom to work and I was sitting down at this table and one of the climate scientists who traveled into Samoa started doing this presentation on climate change. Um, and this was around maybe 2007. And so it was when we were first starting to change the phrase from global warming to climate change. And so I had never heard those two words before. And I watched the presentation and this man, he said that climate change could mean an island like Tokelau would be gone in 50 years. And so my grandma's from um, the Tokelau Islands. And so when I first heard the implications of climate change, like my initial thought was fear. My, my initial feeling was fear. Um, I was so scared for Tokelau, an island that I had never been to, but through my Mama Palipa's eyes, I've been able to see. And when I just thought about, okay, possibly losing Tokelau, and then I thought, okay, possibly losing Samoa, um, that was such a scary thought to me and I still get scared thinking about the climate science and the climate reality. Um, but I also feel like through the feeling of fear, I have nothing, like I know that I also have to have hope. I know that I can't just be consumed by fear. I have to go somewhere beyond that so that there is a future for my people. I'd love to hear your thoughts on um you know, how you feel your experience um, differs from maybe what other New Zealanders experience when we talk about climate change. Like, um, you know, a lot of European New Zealanders or Pākehā talk about climate change as some sort of future thing. Um, and what's your, yeah, what's your kind of message to other New Zealanders about climate change and how it affects us now? I feel like the only, the biggest difference between my experience and, and experiences of islanders in the islands to people say living in New Zealand is that we're living on a different timeline. What we're experiencing now, New Zealanders will experience in the next five to ten years or even you know with the rate we're going at maybe we're starting to experience it now especially in the outer places and the coastal areas of New Zealand uh, but I feel like a lot of people detach themselves from the issue of climate change like it's not an issue for me like because I live in a city I'll never have to live with the implications when we're living very much in a ticking time bomb and so I always like to, to share with people that at the root of, of climate action and the, the fight for climate justice, it's the fight for family. 
and and people don't often make that link but that's why i fight for climate change is for my family and for my village and that's something that all new zealanders can relate to that almost anyone in the world can relate to if you love your family and you've ever experienced that feeling of finishing work at 5 p.m driving home or walking home getting in you know to your house opening the door sitting down in your couch hearing your mom hearing your wife hearing your kids voices and just feeling like I'm at home. That is the feeling that I fight for because there's nowhere that I feel that feeling but in Samoa. And so climate change is a threat currently to that feeling for me. But no doubt about it, it will be a threat tomorrow for any other person in the world. And so when you know we talk about climate change, it really should be on everybody's mind because it will affect everyone's sense of home. It's, that's so beautifully described. I feel like I want to react straight away, but we have to pass this microphone back and forth. Um, I mean, your work with Pacific Climate Warriors um, is about mobilizing people and it is about communicating with people about climate change. Are there certain messages or ways of talking about the issue that you have found have really resonated with people in your experience? I found like the best way to talk to many people is through storytelling. I think that sometimes stats, uh, contextual, like some people love stats and love seeing the graphs and, and um, you know, what's coming on the news and, and quick facts. Uh, but some people also just like to hear the stories, like what is happening in your island? What is happening in these communities who are being affected by climate change? And I think that storytelling is a beautiful way to relay that, because uh, at the end of the day, we're all human, and most of us have you know, human connections to people and places. And if you can hear stories about climate, about the climate crisis from other people's you know, loved people and places, there's that connection you have. And I think that's what storytelling can really offer to people is, is that feeling of, wow, if this is happening to this person, as an empathetic human, I could feel like I need to do something or actually I feel like it might just happen to me. So I therefore need to do something. Thank you. Um, speaking of people who need to do something, we've got a new government. Um, Jacinda Ardern is Prime Minister once again. Um, and in 2017, she promised us a nuclear-free moment on climate change. Um, so I'm interested to hear how you think she's performed on that so far and what you think is her top to-do list items now that she's been re-elected. Thank you. I, I feel like um, Jacinda and her, her current government have had made a way forward for climate change and I think she's kind of seen as a leader in the climate space for first of all admitting that it's real. So I feel like many people have almost idolized her for just in the first place admitting that it's real and wanting to do something about it and declaring it her nuclear free moment but there needs to be much more than that you know there's a there's a big space between being a good saying that you're going to be a good friend and then actually being the good friend um, and she said that you know New Zealand wants to be a good Pacific neighbor but there's a big difference between actually doing that and I think something that she needs to do first or her government needs to do first is uh, declare a climate emergency declare the climate crisis to be something that is very important to, to the people and to the country of New Zealand um, and then I think 
something that's also very pressing that I would say for the second thing that they need to do is there needs to be more Pacific people in the, the climate committee. There's not enough of us. Um, and there was a, a panel during the elections where the government was questioned on why there isn't enough you know, Pacific people on the climate committee. And the responses were so disappointing. You know, one of the response was that the makeup of the committee was expert based and not representative, which is completely flawed in, in, in that response because it's assuming that Pacific people aren't experts. And when it comes to climate change, when it comes to, um, environmental adaptation and mitigation who better to inform you know this climate committee than indigenous people you know Maori and Pacific people who have known how to take care of this earth for centuries you know uh, indigenous people uh, own around 20 percent of the world's surface but yet account and and manage 80 percent of the world's biodiversity and so indigenous people know how to take care of the planet know how to take care of land and earth and so for you know a government to say that we are not experts in this is very problematic and, and in fact tone death to the the land we're on and to the situation we're in and so I feel like that needs to be a priority that you know nothing for the Pacific without the Pacific there shouldn't be any talk about adaptation or mitigation in our region without the islands that are most impacted by what this adaptation and mitigation will look like um, so I think that's important for her and that should go on one of her lists, her government's list. And I think um, thirdly and, and lastly, I'll, I'll, give, I'll give three so that you know you can get through them. But I think thirdly is, is visit Ihumato. And people may not, may not think that sounds like a climate checklist item, but at the very core of the climate crisis and, and really the, the values that led us here is this disrespect of land and disrespect of indigenous people who owned and who have been able to steward this land. And I feel like there's a little bit of a disconnect between uh, political leaders and really knowing the heart of the issue. And at the heart of the issue is the way that we've treated people and the way that we've treated these people's places. And one of those places is Ihumatao. And so I feel like if Jacinda is able to go to Ihumatao, understand the true meaning of what it feels like to lose land, she will be better informed on how pressing the issue of climate change is and the feeling that a lot of people around the world have towards losing their land. I really um, like the challenge that you laid down to Jacinda Ardern by saying, you know, it's one thing to say you're a good friend and another to actually be a good friend. And I think that's that's the change we need to see in this next term of government. Um, I, I also really appreciated what you said about um, the kind of systemic or root cause of climate change and how it's, you know, it's not just about carbon emissions, it's higher than that. It's about um, worldviews and mindsets um, and how we as people interact with the land and interact with nature. Um, do you think there's um, a message that New Zealanders need to know about climate change and, and how it interacts with our relationship with nature? Um, 
know, 79% of people in New Zealand say they're very concerned about climate change. What's one thing that you think people really need to know that they don't already? Uh, um, such a great question. I think something that more New Zealand, or I hope that more New Zealanders um, come into realization is that climate change is an intersectional issue, that there is no climate justice without indigenous people's justice, without a racial justice, without gender justice, because all these, these issues that especially in 2020, we're starting to see um, with the big uprising of the civil rights movement, you know, re-emerging or should I say re-emerging in the media. I feel like there's always been civil rights movements uh, happening in communities, but we're just starting to see that, you know, on our, our telephones and on our screens. Uh, you may think that that has a different space in this world from climate action work, but it's very much a part of this same intersectional issue, which comes down to capitalism, colonialism, um, patriarchy, all which has impacted these different, you know, places in the world. And we're starting to see that it's putting a lot of people in so much pain. And so I would want, you know, for more New Zealanders to know that climate change is not solely an environmental issue, um, to look up phrases like environmental, you know, racism, um, to look into the way that New Zealanders have a history of how we took over this land and how we've degraded the land that we're on currently. Um, there's so much to look into and there's so much resources to, to read and to learn and to educate, but I think more than ever, 2020 has been a year that has proven that we really need to take time to, to sharpen our minds and to really um, get a, a deeper feel of the people around us and not just people like us, but everyone in our community and in our, in our global family who are deeply struggling and who need help. And, and one of the things that will be such a horrible thing is is like uh, the climate crisis will only exacerbate the already existing social issues that a lot of these people have and so I would say that is what I want more people to know is is the intersection that climate has um, in all other aspects of, of our world and, and its issues. Thank you, that's really beautifully put. Um, you talked about 2020 as the year of kind of seeing these intersectional connections between many different issues that people don't necessarily think are related, but they are. Um, what does 2030 look like to you when you wake up on the 1st of January? How do you want 2030 to look? I'm very optimistic. Um, I want 2030 to look like a year where more people are free, um, free from restraints of, you know, um, systems that, that break and bring people down. I want, you know, our islands to be around, for people to be thriving, for um, there just to be more ways in which all people are, are more equal and more free. and. And you know, whenever anyone asks me like, what do you want for the future? I always um, say, and people think it's a joke, but I say, I want it all. <laughs> and, and people always laugh and like, oh, that's funny. I'm like, no, I, I really want it all. I want gender justice. I want climate justice. I want indigenous justice. And I think that 
um, we've been suppressed, especially for me as a brown woman, we've been suppressed to feel like wanting things is a sin. Like we shouldn't want more than what we are, are handed or given. And you know, I really, I really don't like that saying. And I really wanna push against that and say that our imagination they are compasses, you know? Imagine if revolutionaries never had dreams. Imagine if they never were able to look 10 years and want more. And so for me, like that, that's what I can say I want for the future is I want more and I, I want everything. I want all the justice that can come. And, and it's, it's crazy to think that me wanting more and me wanting everything, it's simply like, I just want black people in America not to be shot by police. I just want people in the islands to live on their islands and not have to drown. Like that's everything for me. And I feel like I've almost been conditioned to feel like that's too much to ask for, but um, I don't think it is. And so that's what I want for the next 10 years. <laughs> Really lovely to hear this really optimistic and hopeful view of the future, but also kind of grounded in the reality that things are um, really unequal and unjust at the moment. Um, yeah, just um, thinking about thinking about that, I feel like the world feels like a bit of a dark place at the moment with with COVID, um, you know, with uh, the, the government in the U.S., with the Trump administration, with um, everything that's happening. Um, yeah, what gives you hope in this kind of darkness that's around us? Something that um, gives me hope in, in just general is just young people seeing this new generation of people you know um come out to vote even during our own election in new zealand the the number of, of, of young people i saw organizing around elections and then organizing within the elections like we had two young green party mps um luke and lordes like seeing how there's almost this new generation who are putting their foot down and saying you know what we don't want to live in this system anymore so we're gonna break it or we're gonna find our way to get in it i feel like that's so inspirational and I think that um, we need to, to hand over the reins to the young ones coming up because I think they know what they're doing. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Just observing the strikes last year with the school strike and for the culture movements and they are totally onto it and it gives me hope too to know like there's this generation of people coming up who've really got it in their hands. Um, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Brianna, for this conversation. Was there anything else you wanted to talk about? No, thank you. Thank you for having me. This is Tea Talks Podcast, powered by Greenpeace Aotearoa, made with the help of our supporters. Thank you for listening. <laughs>